0: Welcome to the Distinctive Christianity podcast, where we seek to clarify distinctions between Mormon and creedal Christian thought. I am Brendan, and I am here again with Sky 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 Sky, aka Skyler Skyler, aka. I don't know what other <laughs> oh, weird names Skiles. you have. What were your What were your What was your like childhood nickname? Do you have a childhood nickname? Tons.
1: I, I remember I was into birding and. Uh, Everybody thought that was weird, so they called me Psyduck, because they, uh, they were uh-huh. all into Pokemon.
0: Yeah. You know. Uh-huh. What was your childhood like? Were you Were you into, like, the Dungeons and Dragons? And the, <laughs> no. You know?
1: I was into what we're talking about okay. somewhat. I, You know, I uh, was way into birding. Yeah? Yeah, I was the youngest member of the Utah County Bird Association. Yeah. You
0: actually recommended a birding book to me that uh, I got for our kids, and it's they look at beautiful. it every once in a while. There'll be birds in our backyard, and they... Run and grab that book and try to find find out uh, what kind of bird they're looking at
1: It's beautiful, it's I love cool. hearing that
0: we We have some birders in our church here oh, too. It sounds
1: like catechesis to me, yeah, it pretty it's much <laughs> is
0: yeah i wouldn't I wouldn't into birding i was I was more of a sports kid, yeah, basketball it's fun, baseball, yeah, stuff like that. It was an interesting fact when I learned that most every l d s meeting house has a basketball court in it, yes oh.
1: Boy Scouts, which they don't do anymore, but uh, was typically just kids playing basketball.
0: Yeah. Does yeah. it get used a lot? I mean. It did back then. <laughs> it did. I guess I have no idea now. Yeah. All right. Yeah, Utah does have a bit of a basketball culture. Pretty interesting. Totally. Seeing that. So I hear I hear. jazz fans are, you know. <laughs> I'm a jazz fan. The best of the best. <laughs> Uh, i'm a mavericks fan i you know when i moved to utah i kind of had this moment of of uh what's this gonna be like you know uh paul says be all things to all people yes. like do i need to become a jazz fan How does this work and <laughs> you so can't like, do it I can't do it man <laughs> <laughs> stick to I, the mavericks through through thick and thin the yep. good years and the bad years yep i swear every Keep
1: historic game the you know the mj shot kobe's last oh, yeah. game Popovich yep. rakes some record it's always against us
0: you're it's not, it's hard being wrong. a jazz fan that is it correct it's hard
1: being a jazz fan
0: i actually remember i was a huge bulls fan growing up and uh and i i remember the years that they played against the jazz in those epic finals and uh i just i remember like my heart being so gripped by wanting to see mj crush them <laughs> And the joy when it occurred. It still hurts. I still remember, I mean, you know, little John Stockton. Yep. You know, running around, rocking it. Oh, and and Jeff uh, Hornacek. Is oh, it yeah. Hornacek, Hornacek, Hornacek or Hornacek? I can't I remember, remember it being Hornacek. But that face rub on the free throw. <laughs> There's nobody who's had a better free throw shot <laughs> in terms of the style points that you get before shooting than he did. You remember that? There was a lot more creativity like on the free throw line. Just like sweaty face. Yep. Yep, Just Carmelone. rubbing what does it he with say? that hand. I'm like, that is a weird thing. You know, there's, I don't know how much of that. In I don't the want to NBA comment anymore. further on that. But yeah. boy, I tell you, <laughs> I don't know how that helped him, but somehow it did. You know, there's like there's the one NBA player too who actually shoots his free throws granny style. Have You seen yeah, that? I have. I can't. Remember I can't remember who that who is. Was, but that probably is actually comments. better than than old Hornacek. Yep. So, <laughs> yeah. anyways, well. Thanks for joining us today. We're going to be in uh, the Come Follow Me curriculum. And and just so you know, uh, our aim for the podcast, and uh, you know, we're, we're working this out, right? Like, <laughs> yes. this is as new for us as it is for you guys. Um, and I, I should note too, thank you for listening, because I've been shocked at the response. You know, we we didn't know how many folks were going to tune in and check this out. And uh, the response has been far more than we had expected. And that's because you all are listening and sharing it with people. And we very much appreciate that. We just hope that we can continue to produce some helpful content in some degree. For so sure. uh, we, we definitely appreciate that. But uh, after the first week, we, we're we sort of working through what is the structure of this going to be going forward. And what we're going to aim for is to start every podcast Uh, basically looking at what is in the Come Follow Me curriculum. And, of course, if uh, you haven't been following along, the Come Follow Me curriculum, if you are not LDS, um, that is the standard curriculum that's used in every LDS meeting house, every ward will uh, be working through this curriculum throughout the year. And this year in the Come Follow Me curriculum, the LDS uh, church is studying through – the New Testament. So we're going to follow along with the curriculum. Our intent, just to be clear on this, is not to just work through every word of the curriculum. Our goal is to hit some of the high points um, and start by doing that, kind of breaking down what the curriculum is, what it says. And then we're going to go deeper into LDS thought and Mormon thought and try to pull out some of the historic teachings on the passages that are being covered from the New Testament, and also to clarify some of the words that are used in the Come, Follow Me, Come, Follow Me manual. How have those words been defined and used by LDS leaders throughout the past? So so we're, we're both looking at the Come, Follow Me curriculum. Then we're going to go deeper and kind of say, okay, here, here and, and our hope is to actually faithfully represent that. Um, you know, we're not here to just try to make stuff up we're, we're we're here to hopefully present accurate information and uh and so we want to make a point of that and if we ever say anything incorrect uh we'll try to update that in the show notes and make it clear hey here here's something we were wrong on if we also ever get a quote wrong or something like that let us know and we can correct it and then the final part of the podcast. Will be us taking the passages of scripture because we are in the New Testament this year. Uh, we'll take those passages of scripture and we'll highlight some of the really Creedal Christian essentials that we see in those texts, in, in that text. And our goal is obviously as Creedal Christians to show the beauty of the text um, from our perspective. We want listeners uh, to love the Bible, to love the New Testament. Um, and to interpret it rightly and to see the beauty that is in the proper interpretation of these different passages. And so with that we'll we'll even be bringing in some some historic elements from the uh, Christian faith and uh, all that good stuff. So anyways, let's get into it. Matthew 1, Luke 1, this was January 2nd to January 8th in the curriculum Again, we have the, beginning point of it. Let me just highlight the the curriculum real quick, and then we'll start breaking it down a little bit. Um, we have the same instruction that we covered last week about read, ponder, record spiritual impressions, let the spirit guide your preparation. Uh, that's what we see at the beginning. This is in the teacher's manual, and you do see similar things going on in the manual for individuals and families, which is the uh, the other piece of this that the LDS church encourages their people to be interacting with. We're working through the teacher's manual. The first section is invite sharing. And, uh, the first line, which we'll come back to this is a main purpose of Matthew, Luke, and the other gospel writers was to testify that Jesus Christ is the son of God and highlights the essential, uh, belief, Uh, at least even the way that's written, they seem to be saying this is an essential belief that Jesus is the Son of God. And then it goes down into the teaching of the doctrine, where it is encouraging readers to interact with Matthew 1, 18 to 25, and Luke 1, 5 to 80, and the subtitle of that section is Heavenly Father Works Through His Faithful children to accomplish his purposes. And then class members are to share the meaningful experiences they have. Uh, They're to draw out what they think is significant about the experiences of the people in the text and relate that to their own experiences in their life. So in that section, it talks about Mary and Joseph and Elizabeth and Zacharias. And it says, look at their stories. And then what can we learn from these accounts that will help us today? So practical emphasis going on there, very much like what is the example that you can learn from these characters in the Bible. Then we move on to Luke 1, 5 to 25. And in that section, the subtitles, God's blessings come in his own time. And it talks about Elizabeth and Zacharias living righteously, yet not receiving this hope for blessing of a child, and uh, kind of encourages uh, folks to think about what are you hoping for that God might give to you, and uh, are you just continuing to be faithful until that blessing comes. And then the last section is Luke 1, 28-38, and the subtitle there is, With God All Things Are Possible— the uh, that section ends with what can we learn about overcoming the seemingly impossible by studying Mary's words and actions? Uh, ask class members to share experiences in which God helped them accomplish something they thought was impossible. So you, you continue to see this theme of look at Mary as an example. Um, you know how can we share an experience of sometime that God worked the impossible? You know, so so very much it's rooted in this uh, reader response, uh, putting your own experience into the text. And then the additional resources, category at the very end, the subtitle there is Waiting on the Lord, and it gives uh, a quote from Elder Jeffrey Holland, and that quote is, The answer to such questions is, and this is, of course, responding to, Uh, having to wait for God's blessings. Yes, God can provide miracles instantaneously, but sooner or later we learn that the times and seasons of our mortal journey are his and his alone to direct. So faith means trusting God in good times and bad, even if that includes some suffering until we see his arm revealed on our behalf. And uh, then we have another quote uh, there at the end that is on this idea of um, waiting upon the Lord. And that one, the final line is, uh, I bear witness of God's love and of the restoration of his glorious gospel, which is, in one way or another, the answer to every issue we face in life. And uh, so, yeah, that's just a general overview of what we see happening. So it is highlighting some of the passages of scripture. Of course, uh, they're supposed to read through all of Matthew 1, Luke 1, and just respond to some of the characters in the text and draw out some good life lessons from the text. That's basically what's going on here. Okay, now let's interact with the, the curriculum itself a little bit here, and I'm going to kick it over to you on this, Skyler. Let's first talk about that first line that I read, because, uh, you know, as an evangelical Christian on the surface, sounds right, sounds good, but uh, we need to understand uh, LDS meaning behind the words that are being used there. So, a main purpose of Matthew and Luke and the other gospel writers was to testify that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. What does that mean, from an, from an LDS perspective?
1: Yeah, from an LDS perspective, Jesus is literally the Son of Heavenly Father. So Heavenly, just as you know, a dad and a mom come together and have little Jimmy, we have Heavenly Father and Mary. Produce Jesus, so that's that's there. They don't articulate that precisely, but when it says "Son of God," it's not it's it's Son of God physically. The way we are
0: children of our parents. Okay, so uh, is there a is there a distinction between Jesus as the Son of God and us? It, yes, in the
1: sense that they. They would hold that Heavenly Father and presumably Mother, and then, of course, in early Mormonism, mothers. And by the way, that does connect to this because for Brigham, for example, uh, Mary would be not only a daughter, family father, but one of his wives. But they, um, though they produced everyone spiritually, so in Mormon belief, all people. Are children of God, spiritually, literally. Um, Jesus is the only one who is both a child spiritually, but also physically.
0: Okay, so okay. God the
1: Father has a body. That's something to keep keep in mind. Mm-hmm. He has a body of flesh and bone, uh, not blood. Just yes. comes from a kind of a weird reading of 1 Corinthians fifteen, I think, but. Um,
0: Yeah, so it's it's literal. Yeah, yeah, and there is—I mean—that's something that we hear all the time in uh, LDS lingo. around here's we're we're children of God, and so there is that that teaching that you know we were all we had a premortal existence, and we were all God's children. But Jesus is uniquely the Son of God in the sense that in his earthly being if you want to say it that way he is the son of heavenly father and mary
1: yeah, so they'll you, say
0: according to the flesh you'll hear according that. to the flesh so yeah. so so one of the things we're going to talk about a lot on this episode is the virgin birth um, and the distinctions between the two belief systems we won't exactly dive into that just yet because we're going to continue interacting with the manual but that's where we're going right because that's kind of the big doctrine that sticks out at us from Matthew 1 and Luke 1 is who is Jesus what is the significance of the virgin birth what is what is the virgin birth even like what do we mean when we say he was born of a virgin what does Matthew and Luke mean when when they imply that and why is that significant doctrinally uh, because when we say Jesus is the Son of God uh, we mean something pretty different than what would be taught on a perhaps deeper level than what is expressed just on the surface in this manual within LDS teaching. Okay, uh, let's interact a little bit with that second section for a moment. Heavenly Father works through his faithful children to accomplish his purposes. And then, of course, it gives the examples of Mary, Joseph, Elizabeth, Zacharias. What were your first impressions as you read through this part of the, uh, of the, the teaching? You know, speaking because we need your impressions. (laughs) My impressions. So, yeah, but you know, what 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 was going through your mind as you read through the manual here and just saw the way that it's encouraging the class to interact with the text?
1: Uh, Of course, just immediately, just from the title. um, Of course, once again, Heavenly Father. They mean not the Triune God of the Bible. Um, You know, not just identifying a particular person of the Trinity. They mean actual father who's a an exalted man, was once as we are now and has become by obedience to law and gaining knowledge and gaining experience, according to Holland, even in one of these talks that are cited, um, to that place. So they're identifying a God who is, for LDS, the God of this world. And I, I just think also just... Um, how different the emphasis is, right? He works through his faithful children to accomplish his purposes. Um It's not that we would on the surface disagree, like a lot of these statements. Oh, yeah. But it, he also works through... Uh, Everybody. I mean, you, you just yeah. preached through Ezra Nehemiah, right? Oh yeah. He, he says, "Nebuchadnezzar, I will use. Uh, yep. You know, he he will even use enemies. What people will often mean for evil, he will use for good. That's the cross right
0: there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there there is a consistent uh, call for the people of God, you know, throughout the Old Testament to be faithful for sure. But the message of the Old Testament, if you read it as a whole and really study it, is not that these characters. Excelled, you know, but it's that they failed. Absolutely. Again and again. And yet God used them in spite of them. Yes. Um, So it's not that we're not called to be faithful children. Um, Some of our disagreement would be in how we become considered faithful children in the first place, right? Uh, You know, as evangelical Christians, we don't believe that everyone is the child of God and some are faithful and some are not, and the ones who are faithful are the ones who are obeying the commandments. We believe that the true children of God, as Paul lays out in Galatians, are those who have been adopted into the family of God through faith in Christ. And so there's been uh, an adoption process that's happening, which, which we talked about some last week. Uh, so, yeah, again, you continue to see some similar lingo, but we're going to have a different understanding from a credo-Christian perspective on what that what that means. And uh, certainly, uh, one of the things that, you know, I, I was just thinking about this, some is working through this. One of the things that I often talk to people about, uh, even as we have people come out here to Utah to help us and minister alongside of us, part of the training that I'll do with them is I'll show that there are some similarities to street-level uh, LDSism and street-level evangelical Christianity. And those similarities, from my perspective, can be a very dangerous similarity. And what's fascinating is there was a study done by a sociologist named Christian Smith a number of years ago, I think 2006 was was when this was studied. But they did a big study where they said, okay, let's try to get a handle on the religious landscape of America and see if we can pull together what is common amongst these religions and these these uh, these peoples. So they do this study and they primarily are asking religious questions to lots of evangelical Christians, lots of LDS, and lots of Muslims. And they said, okay, do, do these religions by and large have much difference to them? And what they found was on a street level, there's not a whole lot of difference. <laughs> and what they were pointing to were, uh, well, let me just put it this way. Christian Smith labeled the dominant religion in America and what he called it is moralistic, therapeutic deism. Yep. So that phrase, of course, broken down, just means that religion is for the purpose of being a good moral person. Um, so it helps you better yourself in that sense. It's also for the purpose of therapy. So it helps you to feel good about yourself and to give you a community even to interact with so that you can feel good about your life situation. And then it's really deistic at the root, meaning God does not, uh, he's not imminent. You know, he's, he's not like really present in our lives in a, in a deeply meaningful way. Um, religion is mostly about us and our activity and what we're getting out of it. It's not about this dynamic relationship with a living God. So God is is kind of this deity, you know, the the worldview of deism that he started the 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 clock or the watch and then, you know, went off on his way, and now the world's just ticking on its own. Yeah. You know, so, so they, what they found is there's a lot of similarities between these different religious systems in that sense, and that's what we see in this curriculum. So a lot of this curriculum on a street level would be some of the concerns I would point out within evangelical Christianity, that your religion is just moralism. It's just for your therapeutic good. It's not about a true relationship with the living God that you are worshiping and bowing down to and obeying. It mostly is just about, how can you make yourself a better person? And uh, boy, I'll tell you, man, that was one of the things that it, you saw happening all over the place you know, in the 90s and stuff in uh, Bible Belt Christianity with things like Veggie VeggieTales. You know, VeggieTales has all these great Bible moral lessons. There's no Jesus, and there's no gospel. Um, so when we read these texts from a credal Christian perspective, we shouldn't just be trying to draw out lessons that we can get. We should be looking for how is this pointing to the glory of who Jesus is. Yes. Anything to add to that? Oh, just, there's
1: too much to, uh, yeah, I remember in that study, I can't remember the specific percentage the, there was a high percentage of people who said that um, God was, quote, very important in their lives. You know, the God that's not involved in the world today mm-hmm. but is close enough to worry about your self-esteem.
0: Yeah. God's, uh, God steps in when we need him. Like a butler. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. And then the, the next section being God's blessings come in his own time. Um, the first sentence there, there may be people in your class who like Elizabeth and Zacharias. There you see the example again. Uh, Look at Elizabeth and Zacharias. They're living righteously and yet have not received a hope for blessing. Um, So the encouragement for the teachers is to uh, try to show them that, hey, keep living faithfully and wait for that blessing to come. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I... I guess
1: we we mentioned it. I can't remember. I think it was last time. Um, I just recommend people watch the documentary American Gospel. yeah, I mean, you see this this is the American religion that you know, do good, get good, uh, if you're a good person, you know God will help you be better, you know uh, and like blessings are contingent upon what you do, how you pray. How you live your life. It's it's very uh I, I mean it, when it does infect the Christian church, this kind of moralistic therapeutic deism, it really um turns the Bible into a I guess a just a, you know a bunch of morality tales. Yeah. Not that there's not morality in the Bible, of course there is. And it's not that we preach the opposite of morality, but it's you know, it dooms people to either um pride and think that they're Closer to God than they really are, or more righteous than they really are, or to despair mm-hmm. uh, because they're never good enough. They're always comparing themselves on, you know, Instagram to people who have crafted their image aren't really that way. People, it's not real people, yeah. but they crafted their image to look perfect and how their lives are completely happy and they have no problems. And yeah, and we're even
0: keep seeing that again and again as over we work and over. through this manual. Yep, and, that, and that's, then I mean that's the main thrust of it, right? It's yeah. just kind of this betterment of self. Um, we gonna say something else here? Yeah,
1: well, I was going to say, and uh, you know, I think Hinkley said what they said what's what's great about your religion or whatever and Hinkley said, to make bad men good and good men better. Mm-hmm. That's so American. Yeah, but I want to say that's not biblical. Yeah, that's, that's good at, at
0: any that's, point. And then the the kind of last section as far as the teaching goes is highlighting Luke 1 26 to 38, which again, we're not going to walk through all these in detail, but the, this the heading is with God nothing shall be impossible. Um, so it's taking the, uh, story of the announcement of Jesus's birth to Mary, who is a virgin and it's, it's, uh, it's Mary responding and saying, how is this possible that I can have a baby? Um, and so it takes that story and it says, well, what can we learn about overcoming the seemingly impossible by studying Mary's words and actions? So again, it's taking the text and it's saying, okay, um, you know, what does it seem as impossible in your life that you need to overcome? Uh, and, and they're getting it from that passage. Response there. <laughs> I, I don't know where to start. I, you know, sometimes
1: when there are places where Scripture is teaching about something ethical, you can see how it can turn into be ethical, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, here, that's just amazing to somehow find ourselves in this unique historical yeah. event that, of course, for Christians is the central... I mean, creation, like Genesis 1-1 is the only thing comparable in the sense of the supreme miracle of the Bible and the incarnation. Yeah, How could God, while not ceasing to be God or compromising his deed in any way, become enfleshed for his people? Um, and we take from it, how, how does Mary feel? How can we learn from Mary's feeling? How can we overcome the impossible? It seems pretty forced, doesn't it? Mm.
0: Yeah. <laughs> it, it seems. I mean, well, and I think the... the- It is important to, again, like, as we are always talking about, what we're trying to discover in the scriptures is not how we can read ourselves into it and draw out a moral lesson, but we're trying to see what is God announcing and what what is Matthew trying to convey through the way that he's even telling the stories and the things that he's highlighting. And Mary responding by saying, how is this possible? Is not a response to trying to overcome the impossible in her life. <laughs> it's an awe of what God is doing. Right. That God has just come and said, "Hey, you're going to have a baby. That baby is going to be God. Like yeah. it's going to be the Son of God." Yep. You know. And and Mary is saying, "I haven't even known a man. Like how how uh, can I have?" this baby. yes, And, uh, and so she's in all the whole situation, the announcement that God is coming and taking on flesh and you're going to be the mother that is, that is making her stand back and say, how's that? How's that even going to happen? Yeah. You know? And, and absolutely the true meaning of
1: Christmas. It is not that men can become better and become gods one day, depending on whether you're LDS or Mormon or somewhere in between, depending on how honest you want to be with the language. It's that God became man. Yeah, It's this unique event. It doesn't happen all the time. In fact, it's only happened once. And I mean, it's interesting. This is something that unites for all our differences, all of Christianity. You can watch Bishop Fulton Sheen, even on YouTube, who's Roman Catholic. We would have many differences with him mm-hmm. on the gospel, the nature of justification. Yet he will say the message of Christmas, contrary to every other religious system, is that the one God became man for his people. Yeah. And, it, and so if you, that's one thing that's kind of a silver lining of these kinds of dialogues is that mm-hmm. you almost see Christianity at the most united when interacting with religions like LDSism. Yeah, it's very true. And, but I mean, even here, the, the whole tradition, think of all the things you could emphasize in this text and even just one of them, let alone both, where, the The tradition of the church singing praise to God for the incarnation, which, by the way, the birth is nine months later. Mm-hmm. The, inc- the word was made flesh at conception. Yeah. Christians have always held that life begins at conception. Yeah. But anyway, um, and always been opposed to abortion. That should be said. But um, the 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 tradition of singing hymns and praise of God relative to the incarnation and birth, right? goes back to Mary in this hymn and she sings of course personally but then sings in a sense with the whole church sense and most of the hymn I mean it's just a beautiful hymn yeah and and to take from it how can you overcome what seems impossible to you in your life rather than coming and praising the Triune God that's yeah. saving sinners yeah. it's unbelievable
0: yeah so th- there's two two really important doctrines that are of course um, inextricably related to one another that we need to go deeper On here and draw out some comparisons between the uh, Mormon teaching on these doctrines throughout history and maybe even track some of the teaching from the early days of the Mormon Church and show how that's changed and we want to rightly represent that because we think that to be intellectually honest uh, LDS people need to own this and yes. need to have some explanation of uh, how and why this has changed and how to deal with this within their whole system. Um, when you are saying that the prophet speaks for God, uh, and then you have prophets and apostles who said things like this that you might want to deny now, how do you deal with that? So we just want to honestly show, this. these are some of the quotes from history on the virgin birth. So we'll talk about the virgin birth, and then and then we're going to talk about the incarnation. And, you know, we've already been touching on that some, but of course what we mean by the incarnation is the Son of God becoming flesh and uh, taking on flesh. And so We'll we'll will dive into that. So, Skylar, I want you uh, because, by the way, listeners, um, <laughs> you should know that uh, when it comes to finding the backstory of the LDS teaching on this stuff, uh, literally pages of notes is uh, <laughs> what Skylar brought with him today. I didn't even put all. Uh, of it. You know, I kind of challenge him on this stuff. I'm like, hey, you know, w- w- why don't you go and and show us what the LDS teaching on this has been throughout the centuries. And scholars is one of those guys goes above and beyond. We have a whole library of books sitting here ready for <laughs> quotes to be pulled. We have quotes, you know, running out of uh, the uh, screen on a Google doc here. So um, we're just going to hit on a few of those. But what are some of the highlights that you would have to point to when it comes to the LDS's is teaching? Uh, not only now, let's do talk about that some, but in history on the virgin birth specifically.
1: Yeah, and I, 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 you know, some of it we already covered right at the, f- at the front uh, part of the episode, sorry. Um, so I think, I mean, yeah, we got dozens of quotes throughout church history, and even the debates that happened, I think, are key. So, you know, as someone, we've got all 26 volumes of the Journal of Discourses. I've got Six of them here, seven of them here. Um, And I could go through and show that really, I mean, at the core of even this issue, instead of just isolating it, it it ties in everything else. Who is God? Who is man? Um, Is there a creator-creation distinction? Uh, Was there a beginning to time? I mean, all of these things are on the table with an issue like this. And um, so even, so for example, Brigham Young, teaching to the whole world, saints and are alike, he says, in the first volume of the Journal of Discourses. You know, he announces, this is, by the way, the sermon notorious for um, teaching that uh, Adam is God. And, and by the way, people who believe this, they don't call it Adam God, they call it Michael God. Because you've got to keep in mind, and this is, by the way, another factoid in Luke uh, that we can cover while we're at it. Joseph Smith taught that the angel... Archangel Michael was Adam Hmm. and that the angel Gabriel was Noah. So this is something that most LDS will just know the factoid and, you know, most evangelicals won't realize that's what's going on. Right. Um, So Brigham Young, because think about it. If you, if you don't think people can't, if first off, there's no beginning to time. There's no creator creation distinction. And gods were once men, and then they advanced to that level eventually and became gods. Um, then what, how, do, how do you account for physical bodies all along the way is through through the same process that we go through to have kids. Right. Right? Uh, copulation. Yeah. There,
0: there's one way to have children. There's one
1: way to have children. Yeah, and and Brigham Young even mocks those who would think otherwise. Um, so I mean, they will explicitly say, though, if you read Matthew one closely, it's clearly begotten language associated with the Holy Spirit. There's actually a Trinitarian function, right? Um, the New Testament authors are assuming the Shema. There's only one God, and instead, what they will say is, you know, the Holy Spirit, Holy Ghost, and Holy Spirit, which. Is also distinguished in Mormonism. The Holy Ghost is a personage of spirit, but Holy Spirit is um, like a substance that fills all of eternity. There's a lot of DNC sections on this. Uh, it's the light that causes the sun to shine, and and so even the distinction there uh, is is made. Right, and um, they would say the Holy Ghost cannot have a child, mm-hmm. uh, so they will explicitly teach that Heavenly Father had the Son. Um, even David Ridges in his New Testament commentary that is being promoted uh, for this year in the New Testament, at Deseret book, will say, you know, some have taught that, you know, the Holy Ghost, you know, I'm paraphrasing here, uh, you know, begot, um, begat, I should say, uh, Jesus. Uh, this is false doctrine in the Quotes Talmage, where it's clearly the Father that begets the son. So there's a bunch of quotes here, but all these things are on the table. Yeah. Yeah. All I, of these things I've are got, on the got, I've got
0: even just one here. Uh, this was from a sermon by Brigham Young. Um, again, just going back to some of the earliest stuff. And, uh, these are his words. This matter was a little changed in the case of the savior of the world, the son of the living God, the man, Joseph, the husband of Mary did not that we know of have more than one wife, but Mary, the wife of Joseph, had another husband. Again, he's he's defending polygamy here, yeah. um, which we know that I mean the modern LDS Church denies uh, polygamy; um, they, they don't practice it the, anymore. Though they do in the temple, though. You yeah. even have members of the Twelve and First Presidency
1: that are sealed to more than one woman. So when they say uh, this is for evangelicals, when they say we don't practice it anymore, ask them if they believe it. Yeah. Because if they're still practicing it in the most sacred part of their religion, I would say that's believing it. Yeah. Is Nelson sealed to more than one woman? Is Oak sealed to more than one woman? I challenge LDS people, be honest. Do you believe the doctrine, even if you don't practice it the way that you used to? And we, we obviously want to affirm and be fair and say, you're not like the Brick of yes. but in your most sacred place, you still are mm-hmm. sealing men to more than one woman and women can't be sealed to more than one man.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that, that's fascinating. And the name
1: of the sermon, by the way, that you're reading from is in part called The Beneficial Effects yeah, of
0: it's Polygamy. Beneficial Effects of Polygamy, yeah. Yep. The man Joseph, the husband of Mary, did not, that we know of, have more than one wife. But Mary, the wife of Joseph, had another husband. On this account, infidels—and here you go. On this account, infidels have called the Savior a bastard. This is merely a human opinion upon one of the inscrutable doings of the Almighty— That the very babe that was cradled in the manger was begotten not by Joseph, the husband of Mary, but by another being. Do you inquire of whom? He was begotten by God, our Heavenly Father. That's probably enough. I mean, we could go on reading from that quote. But you see what's being taught in an LDS belief is that Jesus was literally begotten by Heavenly Father. Um, and the Virgin Mary. That uh, you know, one of the, one of the street level uh, arguments that you see all the time is twenty three chromosomes were from Heavenly Father and twenty three chromosomes were from Mary, and that's how you got the person of Jesus. So there's a literal uh, required natural. It's usually not so crass to use the word like intercourse, but yeah. that's that's basically what's being implied. It is. is that Heavenly Father? and Mary had a baby the same way that every person, naturally speaking, has had a baby ever since the creation of the world. And before that. And before that. Before, before that Mormons, in Mormon yeah. theology. For yeah. Mormon
1: theology. Yeah, here's here's just one more example, and I could read from some, so much of this. This is Brigham Young in 1857, delivered in the tabernacle. Um, and the title, I mean, some of these titles in the journal of discourse are pretty long, but uh, just as an example... Uh, or sorry, in part, that to know God is eternal life. God, the Father of our uh, spirits and bodies is in part the title. Uh, It says, when the time came that his firstborn, the Savior, should come into the world and take a tabernacle, the Father came himself and favored that spirit with the tabernacle instead of letting any other man do it. Now notice what's assumed in there. There's not a species distinction between gods and men. He's saying God the Father comes to do it, Why would he let any other man do it? By the way, this was in part his uh, argument for Michael God, and I I just realized I didn't finish the point. Orson Pratt, who was one of the early apostles, uh, totally disagreed with Brigham Young on Michael God. Um, Yet he also has quotes in The Seer um, that he wrote that affirms the same teaching. So even though they're not all agreed that the father is Michael, and clearly that's not the view today with the LDS, um, they all affirmed that the birth occurred in a natural way, not a supernatural way. Do you want me uh, to
0: read one of those quotes? Yes. Or were you going somewhere else? Yes.
1: Well, let me just finish this one really quick, and then I, I think that would be very fitting. Yeah. Uh, because this also gets to Christology, right? So uh, continuing this Brigham quote, "...the Savior was begotten by the Father of His Spirit, by the same being who is the Father of our spirits." And that—that that is all the organic difference between Jesus Christ and you and me. Mm-hmm. That is all the organic difference. Yeah. Is the physical body came from God the Father Himself, whereas all of us, everybody on this earth, were spiritually begotten yep. uh, by Heavenly Father and either one of His wives or many of His wives, depending on which era of Mormonism. So, it, it says, um, it, and the difference there is between our Father notice that that is all the organic difference between Jesus Christ and you and me and a difference there is between our father and us consists in that he has gained his exaltation see the language so yeah did you have
0: yeah we got we got a little bit of uh Orson Pratt here and so this is a this is a quote that that you were just now referencing it says. "...the fleshly body of Jesus required a mother as well as a father. Therefore, the father and mother of Jesus, according to the flesh, must have been associated together in the capacity of husband and wife. Hence, the Virgin Mary must have been, for the time being, the lawful wife of God the Father." We use the term lawful wife because it would be blasphemous in the highest degree to say that he overshadowed her or begat the Savior unlawfully. Inasmuch much as God was the first husband to her, it may be that he only gave her to be the wife of Joseph while in the mortal state, and that he intended after the resurrection to again take her as one of his own wives to raise up immortal spirits in eternity, what What is that saying, <laughs> yeah. Skyler? I yeah, mean, I mean, I think it speaks for itself. And
1: that's that's why, <laughs> you know, I think one of the things to, to fast forward, you'll you'll see it in Talmadge. We're
0: not trying to mock this, by the way. No, what? it's it, it different. It is shocking, though. It's and I think that most different. modern LDS people would even be appalled by some of this, truthfully. Well, if
1: you keep it shallow, <laughs> you know, yeah. you won't notice the difference if you just say he's literally the father, you know, and just don't flesh it out. But I will say, um, so... We found, um, you know, 1972 Family Home Evening Manual, for example, where, once again, it had a diagram, you know, for kids in Family Home Evening from the church, the oh, yeah. church speaking to the church members, and, um, you know, had even a diagram, you know, with father, mother, child, Heavenly Father, Mary, Jesus. And, um, but we don't even need that. If you look in the current year's seminary manual for teachers, it has a similar diagram today. You can look it up on the app on the website. Uh, we're not making this up. We're we're just accentuating these differences so that when you're talking to them and they say we affirm the virgin birth, mm-hmm. we're not talking about the same thing. Yeah, and that difference is essential. It goes to who God is, who man is, who Mary was. Yeah, and um, I, I will say that you know this has shifted. So it's you know. This is one where I actually, the more I looked into it, they, they, the way it's being pretty, articulated it might change a bit, mm-hmm. but it's still there. I mean, it's this is yeah. not like Michael God, where they just claimed Brigham didn't teach it when clearly yeah. he did. Um, though, like I said, uh, Orson Pratt did not. So, you know, it's not that everyone agreed on that. Um, but even here, we this I thought the treatment here was very helpful. I'm just going to dabble around in the, the relevant sections. There's a book called This is My Doctrine, The Development of Mormon Theology by Charles Harrell. I thought this was fitting. Um, in current LDS theology, Jesus' title of only begotten son has essentially the same meaning as son of God, our title that they said here, that they said is a main purpose of Matthew and Luke and the gospel writers. So, because we don't have as much time as I wish, um, Christians... Skyler wanted a three-hour episode. I really right? did. I wanted to do a three to four hours for yeah. this one. Um, when they say Jesus is the son of God... Ask yourself what I'm reading and the quotes we've said, and we have dozens more, including from manuals, not yeah. just in the journal discourses, and but I mean, teachings of Brigham Young on. Uh, is this the message of, the, of Matthew and Luke? Yeah. Ask yourself this. Um, and refers to his unique and literal sonship of the Father in the flesh. Uh, jumping ahead. The current LDS view that the expression only begotten son means the only begotten son in the flesh has been further understood by many church authorities to mean that Mary was literally impregnated by God the Father. Bruce R. McConkie explained that the only begotten son means the only son of the Father in the flesh and is to be understood literally that Christ was begotten by an immortal father in the same way that mortal men are begotten by mortal fathers. Of course, to keep God's sexual intimacy with Mary within the proper bounds of matrimony, it is stated that Mary was legally and lawfully wedded to God the Father. A First Presidency message under the administration of Joseph F. Smith states, quote, The Christian denominations believe that Christ was begotten not of God, but of the Spirit that overshadowed his mother. This is nonsense. See, when they used to be a little more clear. Yeah. This Our belief in the virgin birth that we're going to document as well, we have tons of Christian quotes as well throughout church history, Mm -hmm. um, depending on how much time we have. This is nonsense, according to one of their prophets. We must come down to the simple fact that God Almighty was the father of his son, Jesus Christ. Mary, the virgin girl who had never known mortal man, was his mother. Mary was married to Joseph for time. No man could take her for eternity because she belonged to the father of her divine son. To skip ahead just a little bit, um, of course, for Latter-day Saints who, who hold the belief that Christ was literally conceived by God the Father, the idea of a virgin birth becomes a bit problematic, as it would presumably change Mary's status as a virgin. Like, why call her that? Even if <laughs> there's no meaning to that, Bruce R. McConkie gives his resolution to this conundrum by redefining virgin to mean a woman who has not known a mortal man, and that's why you'll see in the manuals a lot, right, an immortal father. That's a that's a another way of getting at the same conceptual point. Uh, the last quote here from this book, quote, she conceived and brought forth her firstborn son while yet a virgin because the father of that child was an immortal personage. Mm-hmm. So it was a little bit more clearly denying the virgin birth early on. Yeah. But they, they want to retain the word, but just redefine it. Right. And, uh, and that, that's what you'll see with a lot of things um, is they'll say, the, the shifting of words, that language barrier, you really need to be sensitive to. What do they mean by God? What do they mean by man? What do they mean by son of God? What do they mean by scripture? What do they mean by yeah. virg-
0: virgin in this case? Yeah. Now let's get to what they're driving at. Um, and this gets some into the, the uh, theology of the incarnation. Um, what are they, what are they driving at when they are trying to redefine virgin? They've, They've started to tamper with what it means for Jesus to even be the Son of God. Um, what that well, I mean, what that phrase even means? Are we are we talking about the eternal Son of God, or are we meaning that he was just the first one that came from Heavenly Father? Which is, of course, what they are saying from an LDS perspective. But what I think it's important for listeners to see is there is a lowering in comparison to uh, creedal Christianity. There is a lowering of our high Christology, to make Christ less supreme, less almighty, to make him more like us. And part of that is because of the greater goal within the LDS faith, which is to become like gods. Now, I have seen so many modern LDS people denying that the LDS church teaches that that's the goal, to become like God. That's not why Jesus came. He didn't come so that we could become like gods. But you got a quote in one of their manuals that's not too old. Two thousand six, I think, was when this thing was Let's published. See. Is that right?
1: I think nineteen ninety six, but they they use it for a number of years. I could not track down. I just didn't look how long they used it. But copyright nineteen seventy six, but also
0: copyright nineteen ninety two. I think it's worthwhile just reading it though. Yeah, I just want to read stuff it. that was published from the big office up yes. in the, up in Salt Lake City. I mean, this yeah. is. This is LDS Church stuff, student, and animal. so any, any LDS person that would deny, oh, we don't teach that we become gods. We just teach that in some obscure way we become like God. We're not saying we. I mean, even the arguments we're not saying we're ontologically going to become like God, like the same as Him. You know, some yeah. some of those sorts of things.
1: Yeah, for sure. So yeah, this is not hidden. This is page four. Yep. Of the achieving a celestial marriage, student manual Uh, so for the church educational system department of seminaries and institutes of religion and not in a footnote this is I'm just going to read this just listen to this Um, and by the way if you're LDS do you believe this and Christians do you believe this the lesson on page four of the manual is called celestial marriage key to man's destiny and here's the subtitle God was once a man who, by obedience, advanced to his present state of perfection. Through obedience and celestial marriage, we may progress to the point where we become like God. Um, Proclaiming the divine potential within man, John Taylor, he was a president prophet, uh, once wrote, "...knowest thou not that thou art a spark of deity?" struck from the fire of his eternal blaze and brought forth in the midst of everlasting burnings, the Mormon, 29th August, 1857. Elder B.H. Roberts stated, quote, man has descended from God. In fact, he is the same race as the gods. His descent has not been from a lower form of life, but from the highest form of life. In other words, man is, in the most
0: literal sense, a child of God. And that's—I mean—we see that coming through in the teaching on the virgin birth, for sure. Um, we're like Jesus in this, and there are some some ways that we would say Jesus is unique, but it, yes. in in essence, essentially, essentially, we're, the, we're same. the same,
1: and and the same as God. Yep. There is no it, it, people will focus on the polytheism, which is there, but really, we're talking an atheism. Yep. They don't have a transcendent God. That's why Islam is so much closer to Christianity mm-hmm. than um, than Mormonism is. All right, continuing, this is still the B.H. Roberts quote. This is not only true of the spirit of man, but of his body also. Course of study for priests, 1910, page 35. And then here's the manual. Can you see the implications of these two statements as they relate to you and to your eternal destiny? Elder James E. Talmadge did. He declared, quote, In his mortal condition, man is God in embryo. However, Any individual now a mortal being may attain to the rank and sanctity of Godship. Articles of Faith, page 529. Mm -hmm. How is this possible? What course of action will bring this potential into fruition? As you study this lesson, look for the answers to these questions. Um, Skip ahead a little bit. It has study instructions. Here's points to ponder. God became God by obedience to law. God became God by obedience to law. Now, by the way, when LDS apologists want to point to the Council of Nicaea and the debates over how to articulate the divinity of Jesus, keep in mind, everybody there was a monotheist, and everybody there saw an ontological distinction between God and man, and God and creation. The question was which side of the line Jesus was on. Mormonism doesn't have that line at all. Yeah. Okay, so keep that in mind, that even the Arians, many of our heretics are... Well, that's by virtue of heresy. Heresy comes from within, but I would say that a lot of people view LDS as or Mormonism as heresy. But I would say it's so foreign that I'm not even sure yeah. they are. Yeah, they're so different. Yeah, it's the shared language where yeah. I might be wrong there.
0: Essentially, the the heretics that have been pointed out and called out by the councils yes. throughout the history of the church were closer to uh, the the. Teachings of yes Christianity than what Mormonism is yeah, and
1: they will point out quotes from early church fathers. I know I'm distracting myself here, but uh, they will point out early quotes from early church fathers that talks about deification, theosis, things like that. Just keep in mind, keep in mind, find any one of them that does not honor the creation creation or creator creation distinction, and see if any single, even the heretics, ever thought God became God. Yeah, and you'll see the difference right there. Yeah. All right. God became God by obedience to law. It was late afternoon. This is out of the manual. It was late afternoon as we sat in my office, but I felt the time had been well spent. He sat, he sat silently now, obviously contemplating the ramifications of the things we had been discussing. We had talked of God, of how he had become God, and of what that meant in terms of our own exaltation. Finally, he spoke, quote, What is the law of exaltation of which you keep speaking? Quote, well, it involves the whole of the gospel law. Mm -hmm. There is no gospel in Mormonism. Yeah. Everything required of us by God. The
0: gospel in Mormonism is law. Is law.
1: Yeah. Following. it's your You have an opportunity to become a God by obedience the way God has before. Yeah. Jesus is the ultimate example of how to become a father. Mm -hmm. And that's in the lectures on faith, by the way. That used to be the doctrine of the doctrine of covenants. That's not me. Don't get mad at me. Yeah. Get mad. Okay. Well, it involves the whole of the gospel law. Everything required of us by God is associated with this law, but the major crowning point of the law which man must obey is eternal marriage. Therein lies the keys of eternal life, or as the Doctrine of Covenants puts it, eternal lives. In other words, an eternal increase of posterity. Then what you're saying is that God became God by obedience to the gospel program, which culminates in eternal marriage? And then there's a subheading, Through obedience to law we can become like our Father in heaven. Underneath that, the dialogue continues. Yes. Once again, then what you're saying is that God became God by obedience to the gospel program? Yes. Period. Mm -hmm. Wow. Love the clarity, though. Yeah. I, I Honestly, I really like this manual. Do you realize the implications of this doctrine as far as you are concerned? I think so. If God became God by obedience to all of the gospel law, with the crowning point being the celestial law of marriage, then that's the only way I can become a god. Right, and it is the law that assists us in reaching that potential. It tells us what we must do to gain the ultimate freedom. In fact, it is by obedience to law that we have progressed to our present position. Mm-hmm. You mean we have always been governed by law? Always. You are an eternal being, mm-hmm. right? Its Eternality is not an attribute of God yeah. in the sense of it's unique to God. It's a long length of time, and it's actually... E- we. You know, we, it's not like we ever were created. Yeah. So it, it's not true. And I hear Christians sometimes say this, that Mormons think that, uh, you know, God was created. And that's not true. Yeah. God is uncreated, but so are you. Mm-hmm. You see the difference? Yeah. Okay. Um, keep going. Right. The only way I can become become a God? Right. And it is the law that assists us in reaching that potential. It tells us what we must do to gain the ultimate freedom. In fact, it is by obedience to law that we have progressed to our present position. You mean we've always been governed by law? Always. You are an eternal being. You were never created and you cannot be destroyed. But you can advance, progress, and develop by obedience to law. Then Hamlet's question, to be or not to be, is not the question? Right. Not in the ultimate sense, at least. Order means law. And that law is the law of the celestial kingdom. Any who come unto the kingdom must obey that law. See DNC 88, 24 through 29. But I thought Godhood meant freedom. If I have to do things to become God, am I really free? You have got it wrong. It was the Savior who said, if you continue in my word, that is obey the law. That's their exegesis. That's as close to an explanation yeah. of a verse yeah. we're going to get. Yeah. Uh If you continue my word, that is obey the law, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free, John 8, 31 and 32. Hmm. So by obedience to law, we learn truths by which we become free, but not free from the law. Can you see that? I think so. I can be a God only if I act like God? Yeah. Exactly right. Exactly right. That's what it says. Can you imagine the state of the universe if imperfect gods were allowed to spawn their imperfections throughout space? if beings who did not have law under their subjection were free to create worlds, I guess that would be pretty disastrous, but I'm not sure why I see why celestial marriage becomes the crowning apex of this progression. Marriage doesn't seem directly related to the creation of the universes. Notice the plural universes. Oh, but don't be limited by your mortal perspective. God himself has declared his own reasons for existing. Remember he said, for this is my work and my glory. Right. Um, We can go into that some other time. I see his purpose is to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. By the way, how does that contrast with, you know, the Westminster Confession of Faith, larger catechism, first question? What is man's what's the what is the chief and highest end of man? This is the Christian Westminster Confession, yep. larger catechism. What is the chief and highest end of man? Man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and fully enjoy him forever. What is it here? What is God's purpose according to this verse to bring to pass the immortality and the eternal life of man? Yeah. It's a very man-centered yeah. humanistic perspective. Mm-hmm. We're almost to the end which involves giving birth to spirit children and setting them on the road to exaltation. Yeah. You see the difference? See the difference people? And if that is to be done, you must have an exalted man and dot, 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 and an exalted woman. Mm-hmm. Exactly. An exalted man and woman who have joined together in an eternal marriage. If this man and woman were obedient to all gospel laws except celestial marriage, what would be the result? Quote, they still could not be gods. Now I understand celestial marriage is the crowning ordinance of the gospel. Right, I said with a smile. And with that comment, I think we can end the discussion. It continues, but on the bottom of page five, it literally has a stairway Yeah, uh, to heaven, I want to say. A stairway, birth, right. faith in Jesus, repentance, baptism. Which,
0: which, you know, the works of righteousness that yeah. you do in order to gain exaltation. Right. Um, which is the goal. And so Jesus, yeah. Jesus came with an LDS system into the world uh, to be a sacrifice that would kind of level us out to ground zero so that we can be faithful like Jesus and try to be like Jesus and do the works of righteousness in order to get to this exaltation where, uh, you know, if you're being consistent with the teachings of Mormonism throughout, we become like Heavenly Father, not just uh, in an ethical sense, but in an ontological sense, we've of e become gods mm. yeah. um, and it's undeniable, it's undeniable it in LDS uh, writings historically, but m- the modern take on that is s- much softer. Um, it still is there if you know how to read into the the phrases and things that are used here and there. but it's not as outright and obvious. I'm just curious, why do you think that is? That is a good question. I'm not sure I have a good answer for
1: it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Joseph Smith in his King Follower Discourse says you have to learn to become gods yourselves.
0: Mm-hmm. Right? Um, it kind of debunks the whole basis of what Mormonism was started for, right? I agree. Um, yes. It, to, I to think to start it's hard to turn its way. away from that.
1: Yeah. It's lost its way. I will say it is interesting. Um, and you'll see it in American Gospel if you watch it. You know, Kenneth Copeland gave a sermon in which he said the Spirit revealed to him. That Jesus did what any man could do. Yeah. They, right.
0: Um, and I would say, well, if you read, if you read like uh, Deepak Chopra, you know, a lot of <laughs> yeah. new age stuff. Yeah. Uh, he's Very got a similar. book, The Third Gospel, that just kind of turns Jesus into this mystical thing that can be present in you. You can become Jesus. Jesus is this kind of spirit, this idea, this way of living yep. uh, that you're trying to a- attain to. Rather than the person who is is God, the second person of the Trinity, yeah. who is worthy of our worship. Yep. Um, there's a distinction there. So let's just turn very quickly to some of the significance of these doctrines of the Virgin Birth. What are what are we reading when we are diving into Matthew one? We've touched on some of this and Luke one, and we are seeing that this announcement is being made that. Emmanuel is going to be the name of this baby, God with us, that uh, Mary is going to give birth to this one who is the son of of God. Um, as we're reading these different things, uh, how are we, from a credo-Christian perspective, responding to that?
1: In worship. Yeah. I mean, it is, we don't rationally get it because we can't. That's right. We're dealing with God and like Augustine said, if you can comprehend it, it's not God, it's an idol. Yep. Um, that being said, we also want to affirm, on the other hand, that um, God truly speaks in Scripture. Yeah. But whereas like anthropomorphisms in Scripture, LDS, treat in a univocal way, so Father means literally Father, we see it as an analogous use of language, that mm-hmm. there's something true about a good Father that's true of God. Yeah. Though there's a lot of places where the analogy fails. Um, so it's we we see the one God who has always been Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's right. The eternal Son. That's right. Uh, enter, who who never had a beginning, whereas everything created, including all humans, including right. me, uh, did have a beginning. Yep. And
0: were created. And our when creatures. we say Jesus is the only begotten Son of God, we are not using that in a time sensitive sense. Right. Um, we're not saying that Jesus uh, was born of the father at some point what what that word beget means is that Jesus Jesus in some sense the life that the father gives um, Jesus is is uh, is connected to and eternally has been yep is what we mean by that as um, Athanasius says uh, you know
1: always a father always a son what? actually yeah. I'm not sure that was Athanasius. Don't quote me on that. I think it might have <laughs> been another tr- those great those church guys. father. But yeah. um, but the, anyways, the finding of the early councils yeah. being faithful to the, all of what the Bible says. That's right. Um, see that the son language is once again analogous. It's not literal, um, though there is something literally true about it, that the, there's something about the relationship of father and son that is true of the father and the son eternally. Yeah, and we pray to God as Father. That's not an of course. Yeah, the, the transcendent God. In fact, in the Isaiah passage um, uh, that Matthew is quoting, um, it talks about how we love to go after conspiracy theories and fear things in the world, and it says, "No, make God holy." Yeah, if there's there's something to fear, it's this God who exists. Yep that we are rebelling against. And yet that God in his mercy, not because it was deserved at all, or a matter of course on the Jesus's path of progression that eventually we will follow. That's right. Uh, but the one God that exists, keep in mind, by the way, Mary, all these devout Jews praying the Shema every day, mm-hmm. condescended and took on flesh to save a people yeah, out of it, yeah. out of sin. And, um, so we we don't approach it in this kind of rationalistic, naturalistic way yeah. um, we approach it as the supreme mystery revealed by God, yeah and a, you see a, that a miracle absolutely you know, a miracle <laughs> yeah.
0: that God is taking on flesh, um you know even some just the the base argument that Jesus needed twenty three chromosomes from the father no, no no, no, there is a Miracle that is occurring within the womb of Mary, uh, that she is going to be the mother of the second person of the Trinity. That that Jesus existed always has existed and is taking on flesh, and is coming to marry this one that He has chosen. <laughs> you know yes. to be His mother, and uh, and so there isn't uh, there isn't this sense of well things are just happening according to the natural order of things, and so we got to come up with some explanation of that. Again, Christian take it back to the garden of eden you know uh, did did where did where did adam and eve come from from an evangelical you know credo christian perspective did did they need some natural process of this begetting that would happen between a father no god miraculously created them formed them out of the dust of the ground and the significance of what's happening with jesus in the virgin birth is that he is coming as the second Adam? So in the same way that Adam and Eve were created by miracle, the the creative work of God. So Jesus, in his flesh, of course he eternally existed in uh, his divinity, but in in his flesh he is being created as the God Man in the womb of Mary for the purpose of coming and being the second Adam. First Adam failed, messed up. You know he 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 had this this good created. Uh, body and, 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 and soul and all the rest and sinned and rebelled against God. And everyone has been created in the image of Adam ever since. And that's why a, a miracle was necessary for Jesus to not be created in Adam, but to be created anew as the second Adam so that he could come into the world and be righteous in all the ways that first Adam failed and all of us fail as well. And so that's the significance of the new birth or the, or the, of the virgin birth is that Jesus is coming as this new representative for humanity, this new representative head who is now going to be the righteous one that every other man has failed to be, be the one who is pleasing in God's sight, the only one who is pleasing in God's sight to take on, yes... Uh, human flesh, in the sense of He took on the weakness of that flesh, and yet lived perfectly righteous, dependent upon the Holy Spirit through His whole life, so that He could be the unblemished, perfect, spotless Lamb to sacrifice Himself for the sins of the world. Because the wages of sin is death, that you need a perfect sacrifice to take your place. Jesus becomes that perfect sacrifice through His perfect life, and then grants us His righteousness as a free gift to all who would believe and say, "Jesus came for me." me he came to die for me to live for me and his righteousness is my only hope uh before god without the virgin birth none of that is possible
1: absolutely and and um this is why as well like for example Orthodox, and i say that with the lowercase o christians have always confessed that mary is the bearer of god the mother of god i mean it comes right out of this chapter too right mm-hmm. um where Elizabeth, of course, John the Baptist already witnessing yeah. to to the Savior. Um, why is it granted in verse forty three? Why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord? Yeah, this is an Orthodox Jew priestly family who worships one God, yeah. Yeah. not multiple gods. It's not David Ridges, an interpreter, claiming, "Oh, the higher God." That's polytheism. These are monotheistic Jews. Yep, that's right. These are monotheists, and yet this God that created all things, it says in John, there's not one thing created that was not created by Jesus. Not one thing became man, was in the womb of Mary for nine months. It, it, It is a miracle. We don't come and try to rationally solve it and somehow find the purpose of this as how can you overcome the seemingly impossible. No, this is about God and what he has done for us. It's, it's, it's incredible. And, and through that, it says in John 1, I know we're going to get to John 1, but this is so key when it comes to who man is. To all who did receive him, hmm. this, the word, who believed in his name, believed, yeah. not worked their way to earn, believed in his name, he gave the right to become, become children of God who were born not of blood, yeah. Nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And I love this last line. Jesus Christ, no one has ever seen God. Mm-hmm. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. That's this that's the God we worship. And and so yeah, I mean, there's so much to cover. We have so much from the early church. <laughs> I, I I don't know can I read a few quotes, yeah. Is that sure, okay? Absolutely. I mean, I know we're going a little over people. Yeah. I, uh, I thank you for listening. I, we're going to try to keep these to an hour. Some, some of these but quotes
0: too are are important because, uh, you know, one of the big claims in the LDS Church is that everything went wrong at Nicaea. You hear that all the time, Nicaea, Nicaea, Nicaea. That's when all the doctrine of modern Christianity was made up and created. And what we want to clarify is that is, that is that is absolutely false because if you go back to the, the early church fathers pre-Nicaea, you find that the doctrines that were affirmed at Nicaea were present in the church being held to. Nicaea was merely the clarifying yes. of what had always been taught in the, in the church. Absolutely. Um, that, that kind of unified central doctrine that was considered the true Christian belief. Um, that's what the purpose of the gathering was. So, uh, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. And, fire and away.
1: If this incredible miracle, world historic, unique, and I mean that one, just as there's only one God, and John one even affirms that, um, that we just read that Zechariah and Elizabeth would have affirmed that Mary as a devout Jewish woman would have affirmed, citing the Shema as the foundational commandment. That even Jesus himself affirms in Mark twelve is the most important commandment. There's only one God, yeah. not the first God, the one God. That's right. If this event happened it takes time to figure out how to articulate what happened. Yeah, absolutely. It's not something you can, if, if it's something you can teach in a family home evening, man, to kids, it's not God. Yep. I think that's a pretty good rule. Well, I, I think this is a good way. So for the for, uh, scholars of church history, they'll know kind of what we're saying. I, I got a quote from Oregon, often called Origen, um, and both of these quotes are from the 200s A.D., and one from Teutolian. And if you'll notice, I, I'm picking this. The, you know, One of the main debates was how to utilize philosophy yeah. uh, in our understanding of Scripture. And the, the famous question is, what has Athens to do with Jerusalem? And, of course, they were on opposite sides of that debate. And yet, listen to how both of them talk about this unique event. And then I, I think I got one more after this. So three quotes. But let me just read these. Oregon from his first principles, book one, chapter two. We are forbidden the ungodly belief that God the Father begets and sustains his only begotten son in the same way that one human being begets another or one animal begets another. There is necessarily a great difference and rightly so between divine and human begetting because nothing can be found in creation or conceived or imagined which can compare with God. Therefore, human thought cannot understand how the unbegotten God becomes the father of the only begotten son. For it is an eternal and ceaseless begetting. Just as radiance is generated from light, the sun is the radiance of the eternal light, the perfect mirror of God's activity in the image of his goodness. End quote. Okay, Tertullian, and once again, opposite side of some pretty key debates in this century among Christians. Yeah. We must ask how, says Tertullian against Praxius, chapter 27. We must ask how the word became flesh, John 1.14. Was he transformed into flesh, or did he clothe himself with flesh? Mm -hmm. Surely it is the second of these. We must believe that God's eternal nature cannot undergo change or transformation. Transformation involves the destruction of what first existed. The thing that is transformed ceases to be what it was and begins to be something else. But God does not cease to be, and he cannot be anything else other than what he is. And the word of God, and the word of the Lord endures forever, Isaiah 48, remaining in the same form. By the way, uh, if you do run across the LDS exegesis of some of this Luke 1, claiming that the Most High is a different God than the Lord and all that, just look at Isaiah 40 through 48. LDS tend to love chiasm. They tend to love parallelism in Hebrew poetry. Yeah, Take that. And look at it, and the Lord is often associated with God, even the Most High God, the same God, okay? All right, Uh, and Tertullian relies on that. Okay, continuing the quote. His incarnation then means that he comes to exist in flesh and is revealed, seen, and handled through flesh. Hmm. Other reasons demand this interpretation, for if his incarnation just happened through a transformation and change of his substance— Jesus would then be one substance made from two, flesh and spirit, a kind of mixture, just as amber is a mixture of silver and gold. In that case, Jesus would end up being neither gold, spirit, or, nor silver, flesh, because the one element changes the other to produce a new third thing, tertium quid for those who know their Latin. This view of the incarnation produces a Christ who is neither one thing nor the other. Keep in mind, he's trying to wrestle, how, how can God become man? Yep, Because God isn't a man, and it says that in the Old Testament. Yep. I'm not like you, he says in the Psalms. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you, he says in the Psalms. Okay. But we see in Christ two forms of being, not confused with each other, but joined together in one person Jesus, who is both God and man, and the proper nature of each substance. Keeps its own full reality. The spirit carried out in Jesus its own actions, the powers, works, and signs, and the flesh experienced the things which belonged to it. Hunger during the conflict with Satan, thirst when it met the Samaritan woman, weeping over Lazarus, being troubled at the approach of death and finally the experience of death itself. Notice how Christians talk about this. This is a, a sermon, Feast of the Nativity, from a pope, a pope that... Protestants-like, by the way. Yeah. Uh, some unity here. Pope Leo the Great, he defended the Christology we just heard. Mm-hmm. Oregon and uh, Tertullian defending. Once again, defending doctrines that will be clearly articulated in future creeds and councils. Yeah. They're already here. We're not waiting for Nicaea. Right. Both those
0: quotes are long before Nicaea. That's right. Okay. Well, um, and by the way, you can, yeah. you can back up all the way to the first century and find Ignatius writing about this stuff. Yeah, or second you know, century, so. 100s. Uh, yeah. No, is it, is I, I this mean in, in first, the first century. Yeah, he wow, died. He wow. died in the early first century. Oh, wow. So, wow. Yep. Um. So he, yeah. I mean, his life's where we don't know exactly when Ignatius was born, for the yeah. record, but the assumption is, you know, he's he's a first century guy. Yes. Um, dying in the in the beginning of the second century. So,
1: anyways. Yep. It's it's there, but I love this. So here's a Christmas sermon, of course, the feast of the Nativity, uh, from. A defender, he was a pope from 29th of September 440 to his death in 461 A.D. So here's the Christmas message and some of it. I wish I could read all of them and I have all of them here in this volume. But on all days and at all times, dearly beloved, does the birth of our Lord and Savior from the Virgin Mother occur to the thoughts of the faithful who meditate on divine things and the mind may be aroused to the acknowledgement of its maker. And whether it be occupied in the groans of supplication or in the shouting of praise or in the offering of sacrifice may employ its spiritual insight on nothing more frequently and more trustingly than on the fact that God, the Son of God, notice that, God, the Son of God, begotten of the co-eternal Father, was also born by a human birth. For this, But this nativity, which is to be adored in heaven and on earth, is suggested to us by no day more than this, when, with the early light still shedding its rays on nature, there is born upon our senses the brightness of this wondrous mystery. For the angel Gabriel's converse with the astonished Mary and her conception by the Holy Ghost, as wondrously promised as believed, promised, it's even promised in the garden people. The first gospel is in Genesis, Genesis 3. That seed would crush the head of the serpent. The Holy Ghost as wondrously promises believe seem to recur not only to the memory but to the very eyes. For today the Maker of the world was born of a virgin's womb, and he who made all natures became son of her whom he created. Today the Word of God appeared, clothed in flesh, and that which he had never that which had never been visible to human eyes, began to be tangible to our hands as well. And it, it goes on and on and on, but last quote, yet today's festival renews for us the holy childhood of Jesus, born of the Virgin Mary. And in adoring the birth of our Savior, we find we are celebrating the commencement of our own life. Mm-hmm. There's us. Notice it's not, how can we overcome the impossible? There's us, but it's it's not the primary thing. Yeah. we find the commencement of our own life for the birth of Christ is the source of life for Christian folk. And the birthday of the head is the birthday of the body. Although every individual that is called has his own order and all the sons of the church are separated from one another by intervals of time, yet as the entire body of the faithful being born in the font of baptism is crucified with Christ in his passion, raised again in his resurrection and placed at the Father's right hand in his ascension, so with him are they born in this Nativity, for unless he came down to us in this humiliation, no one would reach his presence by any merits of his own.
0: Mm. It's a pope. Yeah. That is a sermon. That's why Jesus came. Absolutely. Um, that is the whole purpose of the incarnation is man lost in sin, needs salvation. God himself comes down to make the way. <laughs> Absolutely. And that's why Jesus is the way, yep. the truth, the life. Yep. No one comes to the Father except through Him. Yep. I know that's a lot. We appreciate y'all sticking with us this week. Uh, we will be in Matthew two and Luke two. Yes, here in hopefully a few days. We're going to post that one ahead of time to get ahead of schedule. So sounds we'll good. We'll see you then.